This episode of First Line is sponsored by TrueLearn, an exam prep company best known for their smart banks that turn your weak areas into your strengths. I am so excited to partner with TrueLearn because it is the only company I trusted for Comlex Level 1 prep last year and Level 2 prep this year. For my listeners who are taking the USMLE, TrueLearn also has an amazing USMLE smart bank. Each TrueLearn smart bank practice question has detailed answer explanations and succinct bottom lines to get the big learning takeaway. TrueLearn includes first aid references for each question and an option to create tests based off of topics, so you can use TrueLearn to help prepare for your school's test during the year. Lastly, if you are in your third year like me, TrueLearn also offers smart banks for shelf exams. Go to TrueLearn.com and use one of my special discount codes for up to $35 off your new subscription. Special discount codes can be found in the episode description. TrueLearn is the first line solution to excelling on your your exam. My name is Aubrey Ann Jackson and this is First Line. I'm here to bridge the gap between sophisticated doctor talk and oversimplified patient education to bring listeners of all backgrounds together to discuss whole body health and wellness. Through an osteopathic lens, First Line covers tangible ways to improve your health, hot topics in healthcare, the journey to becoming a physician, mental health, relationships, and even philosophy, all while holistically addressing the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. Thanks for joining me for another episode. Alcohol use disorder is way more common than you think. Currently, about 14% of the population in the United States meets the criteria of alcohol use disorder in the last year. And the lifetime prevalence, and this just means this is the percentage of people that have alcohol use disorder at one point in their life, is a little over 29% in the United States. So that's more than one in four, it's almost one in three. This is a real problem. Even more startling is less than 10% of individuals that meet the criteria receive any treatment whatsoever. That doesn't mean medications necessarily, that means anything. So therapy as well, less than 10% receive any treatment. So how do we define alcohol use disorder versus just regular alcohol use? Disorder in psychiatry means that it causes some kind of impairment in daily functioning, and that can mean work, school, home, socially, or it causes some sort of subjective distress to the individual who has it. So that is the first criteria that needs to be met. Additionally, alcohol use disorder requires at least two of the symptoms I'll discuss within a time period of 12 months. So it has to be going on for at least 12 months, two symptoms at the very least. But you'll see as I talk about these that a lot of people with alcoholism or alcohol use disorder have a lot of these, a lot more than two. And those are, one is cravings, So you crave alcohol. A lot of times this is referred to as an eye-opener. So you wake up in the morning and you feel like you need a drink. Two is either persistent desire. 
to cut down or unsuccessful attempts to cut down, whether that's your desire or your family's desire, you can't do it either way. Number three is increased time spent to obtain alcohol. So this means you're going out of your way often take some time during your day to obtain alcohol. And this one is a little bit more common in other substance use disorders when you have to really go out of your way to get that supply of heroin or cocaine or marijuana. Alcohol usually is pretty easy to obtain. But if you're a young person who is below the age of 21 where it's legal to drink in most places, this might come in. And unfortunately, a lot of alcohol use disorders start very early, even before the age of becoming a teenager. It can start at any age, and it's especially prominent in college students as well. So that was number three. Number four is you're either taking in larger amounts of alcohol or you're using it for longer. And what this means is binge drinking. You're taking in larger quantities a lot of times enough to black out or lose consciousness, but not necessarily. can also just be a state of drunkenness that impairs your ability to function and it's a little bit more than what a typical person might drink. This is kind of subjective, but the idea here is that it's a larger amount than what you would usually drink. Number five is also, this comes into the impairment. It leads to problems at work, in the home, or at school. So, and this is a very social aspect as well, that it, it is impairing your relationships, whether it's with your family or your peers at school or with your boss and coworkers at work, and you're not able to meet the obligations that are expected of you. Next one is particularly social problems, and a lot of times this comes up with continued use despite it directly causing social problems. So you're not able to show up for the people in your life and they're starting to notice and it's starting to cause a rift between you and those people in your life. So that's number six. Number seven is tolerance. And this is kind of connected to that larger quantities you need subsequently larger quantities of alcohol in order to feel the same effect. So alcoholics like the feeling of being tipsy or drunk or maybe even losing consciousness as a way to cope with the stressors in their life. No matter what it is, you are developing a tolerance in that two beers used to make you tipsy and now it takes six beers to make you tipsy. You build up a tolerance, you have a higher baseline than another person would and also it's different with your own baseline. And the last one kind of goes along with this too. Number eight is withdrawal. So you have symptoms of withdrawal in the short term. In the short term this could be limited to headaches, nausea, anxiety, and in agitation, restlessness, irritability, and in a little bit worse circumstances, you can even start getting shaky, having tremors, seizures, hallucinations, disorientation, 
a lot of different things can happen if you have a high amount that you're withdrawing from and you're withdrawing for longer periods of time without receiving medical help during your withdrawal. And this happens to a lot of alcoholics that want to go cold turkey, which which means that you have to suffer the withdrawal symptoms. And often this is done better in a hospital setting where they can help you mostly with benzos to more evenly recover from intoxication and from withdrawal. Withdrawals happen, this is kind of related to tolerance because your body is used to being at a different baseline with having a certain amount of alcohol in your system and when you are completely withdrawn from it, now you're getting below your baseline and it has almost the opposite effects of alcohol. Some of them kind of seem similar to what you might see in intoxication like potential nausea and vomiting but other ones are kind of the reverse of what alcohol does to you so it can cause anxiety and nervousness and insomnia whereas when you are intoxicated you're more likely to be relaxed and able to sleep. A lot of people become reliant on alcohol before bedtime because they think that it will help them to fall asleep and it often does however alcohol this is kind of unrelated but alcohol decreases the amount of deep sleep that you get so you're able to fall asleep but in the morning you don't feel as rested as you normally would with the same hours of sleep so it's more about the quality being affected and less so the quantity being affected number nine important social occupational or recreational activities are given up or reduced due to alcohol use so someone that doesn't have time to do hobbies that they usually did, they're not able to go out with friends or they're not able to find a job or get a raise in their job because of alcohol use. Or they have to take less hours of their job. Number 10, recurrent alcohol use in situations where it is physically hazardous. So, that is things like drinking and driving or drinking on the job. And last but not least, number 11 is alcohol use is continued despite the knowledge of having physical or psychological problems that are likely to have been caused or exacerbated by alcohol. And this includes things like worsening depression or increased anxiety with a pre-existing diagnosis Alcohol can also exacerbate physical problems, especially liver conditions, heart disease, blood pressure, or digestive issues are common as well. The presence of two to three symptoms is defined as mild alcohol use disorder. The presence of four to five of these symptoms is moderate, and the presence of six or more is severe. I'm hoping that no one listening has alcohol use disorder, but hopefully this is enlightening to you with how low the threshold is set in order to be able to diagnose this. Unfortunately, this applies to a lot of people. And like I said, it's one in four, almost one in three 
people will have this at some point in their life. And if you know someone, whether it's yourself or you know someone close to you, family member, friend that meets these criteria, you need to approach the topic with absolute love and understanding but they do need to be receiving help and there is a lot of help out there. I'm going to be talking about different medications that are available as well as different more therapeutic options that don't involve medication. And I think the best treatment for alcohol use disorder is a little mix of all of these things to confront it from all angles to lead to the most successful outcome. First Line is now available on a variety of platforms, including Spotify and Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Stitcher, Amazon and Audible, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Castro, Player FM, Podbean, TuneIn, Reason, and iHeartRadio. Please subscribe and follow wherever you listen to your podcasts. So the first thing I will talk about is the psychotherapeutic treatments. So these are things like cognitive behavioral therapy, which can be done by a therapist and psychologist. You can also see a psychiatrist that will be able to appropriately diagnose you with alcohol use disorder and will appropriately refer you to someone who can provide this service to you. There's also the 12-step facilitation. So that is basically your Alcoholics Anonymous, and I highly recommend it for anyone because their approach has been so good with empowering the individual, but also integrating you into a community for support, and it really is so powerful. I've been to two Alcoholics Anonymous meetings in my life. The first one, I went with a friend to take notes and provide support. The second one I went to was more recently as part of my psychiatry rotation so that I could also take notes and be able to understand what is involved and be able to appropriately refer patients in the future when I when I treat patients myself and I think that that's going to happen quite often with how common this is. I know a lot of people that have done really well in the 12 steps and with the community. They really do have a great thing going. They incorporate spiritual aspects that are non-denominational and cross all religions, but I think that is really essential because I think a lot of people with alcohol use disorder turn to alcohol, like any substance, as a way to cope. And I think that so many things in mainstream Western medicine, modern medicine, is that we kind of ignore that aspect of our lives, and a lot of times it is very much interrelated with what is going on physically and mentally with us as well. Another option is motivational enhancement therapy, which is similar to CBT, but is focused a little bit more on your motivations. And this can be done 
by anyone. We learn how to do it in medical school. So you could even see your primary care physician to kind of talk through your motivations and your goals and be able to arrive at some agreement and really guide it. It's a very much patient guided session with deciding where your motivations lie and then taking planning steps and then action steps towards creating the life that you want. Next up is some medications that work specifically well with alcohol use disorder and are very much evidence-based with a lot of research behind it. These drugs are naltrexone and acamprosate. These are recommended treatments that are assessed as having the benefits clearly outweighing any harms. And it's been ranked as having a moderate confidence of a true effect with a cause and effect relationship between taking this drug and uh, treating your alcohol use disorder. A lot of people swear by it. It has helped a lot of people. And these drugs, you, you take one of them, this is especially good with people with moderate to severe alcohol use disorder. Especially if you have the goal of reducing your alcohol consumption, achieving abstinence, or prefer it to non-pharmacological treatment, or if you have previously not responded to non-pharmacological treatment. So really, the 12-step program and CBT, those are really your first line that if you can stay abstinent and or reduce your consumption, whatever your goal is, those are the go-to first before trying these treatments, unless you prefer to have this from the start if you see yourself as high risk and need some extra support. It is good for both of those instances. So this can be first-line treatment as well. You can't use a campersate if you have any kind of kidney issues and you shouldn't use naltrexone if you already have hepatitis or liver failure. The side effects of both of these drugs could include vomiting, and a compressate in particular can cause diarrhea. Naltrexone has been known to cause things like dizziness, nausea, and liver function alteration. It is not recommended to use antidepressant medications to treat alcohol use disorder unless there is a co-occurring depression that needs to be treated. So usually it's just this naltrexone and a compressate that are used. Also a few things that are recommended that have a little bit lower evidence with having a direct cause effect but definitely benefits outweigh the negatives is to have an initial psych eval like I said earlier with the psychiatrist to look at your alcohol use your tobacco use, and your misuse of any other substances so that the healthcare team can properly treat you and give you the support that you need. Also, you should be assessed for co-occurring conditions, and these can be psychiatric disorders, mental health issues, or they can be medical disorders as well, like what I said earlier with the kidney failure and liver failure. That's going to indicate what you need to be using for pharmaceuticals, or if maybe these non-pharmaceutical therapies are a little bit better, like that cognitive behavioral therapy and the 12-step program. The treatment plan should always use evidence-based 
non-pharmacological and pharmacological treatments. So the ones that I talked about already are definitely what you want to use because these have been proven to have the benefits outweighing the risks. Benzos, so benzodiazepines, should only be used for acute withdrawal. And these are given to you in the hospital if you show up with withdrawal symptoms, like I discussed earlier, or with intoxication. And it's fun to receive benzos for any other co-occurring disorders. It's not contraindicated for longer term with alcohol use disorder. It's just only indicated for that withdrawal period. But benzos should not be used long term for them unless they're taking it for another reason. It's also recommended to identify elevated levels of consumption using physiological biomarkers, so looking at your liver enzymes. Another thing that is recommended is to agree on and document goals of treatment. So whether it's to say abstinent, to just reduce the amount of alcohol, to use alcohol in moderation, or just to reduce the harms that alcohol is causing, you want to be clear with what your goals are so that the healthcare team can help you. And this also includes discussion of any kind of legal obligations you have, whether you were driving under the influence or you were engaged in other altercations under the influence of alcohol. You should always discuss with your psychiatrist or with your family medicine physician any kind of risks to self. So any risks to your physical health, your occupational functioning, and your legal involvement, as well as your risks to others, which is impaired driving. Like I said on a previous episode, the third leading cause of death in the United States, according to the CDC, is accidents, and many of them involve an impaired driver. You may have heard of the drug disulfiram, or maybe you haven't because it really isn't used that much anymore. It can be offered to patients still with moderate to severe alcohol use disorder if you prefer it to naltrexone or acamprosate, which are better drugs for this. But it can be used as a next line agent if someone doesn't respond or is intolerant to these drugs. But the problem with this is that disulfiram inhibits an enzyme called aldehyde dehydrogenase, and this causes an increase of acetaldehyde, which is a breakdown product of alcohol, and this is the compound that leads to the really bad effects of alcohol use that no one finds pleasant. It can also increase your levels of liver enzymes. Uh, it can interact with other drugs you might be taking and it can cause really bad drowsiness, but it doesn't really reduce your cravings necessarily like the other ones do. It really just makes it miserable for you when you do drink alcohol. So it's it's kind of a punishment for you if you're taking this and then you drink alcohol. It will make you feel absolutely bad. But the idea here with it not really working well with patients is that you have to be super motivated because you could just decide one day like, oh, I'm not going to take this medication. I'm just going to drink instead because I have a craving. And then you just won't take the medication and you won't feel terrible. But this is really good for people that are super motivated and they want to have that deterrent. Also, a less recommended but still available is 
two more drugs called topiramate and gabapentin, and these are both typically used more for things like seizure disorders, and this is sometimes used for people with moderate to severe alcohol use disorder if their goal is to reduce consumption, achieve abstinence, or they just prefer it to the other drugs, naltrexone and camprosate, or if they haven't responded to those drugs. But both of these drugs do have their own side effects as well. Topiramate can potentially cause cognitive dysfunction, so your brain might feel a little bit foggy. It can also affect how you taste food, and it can decrease your appetite, therefore, and even cause some weight loss. But sometimes that is a side effect that people may want. Gabapentin has its side effects too, but usually these are limited more to dizziness and somnolence, which basically means sleepiness. The big thing about gabapentin is that it can be used during pregnancy, so that's really the indication that you would see that being used. You can send me a voice message using the Anchor app. If you want to send me a comment, ask a question, or share any topic ideas that you want for an upcoming episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate it if you take some time, just a minute of your time, to write a review. Hopefully it's five stars, but I really like honest reviews. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. So I hope this was educational and helps you to understand alcohol use disorder, how common it is, how it's diagnosed, and how it can be treated. I really do hope that if there is someone important to you in life that you encourage them to seek help. It's a little bit harder to get people to realize that they need help because alcohol is so prevalent in our culture is legal compared to a lot of other substance abuse that goes on but it can be just as impairing even easier to become impaired to it and it's important to know that anyone who struggles with this disorder is definitely not alone and there's not anything inherently wrong with them it's just that a lot of people reach for alcohol in response to stressors in life and it's not It's not anyone's fault to make that mistake, and it's just in our culture, it's very easy to make that mistake. And if you're struggling with a lot of stress and even untreated depression or anxiety, a lot of people self-medicate with alcohol. There should be no shame in that. When you approach a doctor to discuss this they will be so happy that you brought it up and they will definitely help you get the help that you need and it doesn't mean that you need to go on medication necessarily though that is always an option but there are other options as well thank you so much for listening again i'm on instagram at firstline podcast also on facebook facebook.com slash firstline podcast you can reach out for any questions comments suggestions feedback i'd love to hear from you thanks again